Verse 18 of chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears from it, and the new from the old. And a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of even, uh, even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man with a withered hand, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Good morning. That was really lame. Really lame. It's Valentine's Day, guys. It's Valentine's Day. Good morning, Crosspoint. All right. When we're in church, we're supposed to celebrate. We're supposed to rejoice. And here is the good news of the gospel on Valentine's Day. Listen, good news of the gospel on Valentine's Day is that you are not defined by your companionship of anyone else but Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel on Valentine's Day. That's what we can all celebrate. And the world tells us an alternate gospel that says today, if you don't have the companionship that other people have or this or that, or someone's not proving it to you and you're not proving it to someone else that you love them, then you're less than. But the gospel says Jesus loves you and he did prove it to you. He died for you. Let's pray. Father, We honor you now. We exalt you now. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister your love and affection to us. That, God, you would correct the thinking that God is anti, anti anti-gospel, anti-Jesus, anti-your heart for us. And that, God, you would give us more and more and more of the precious and glorious grace that we don't deserve but that you died for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, Bible's open. We're going to do a little run-through of some things in the Bible here in a moment. Um, years ago, there was a sermon broadcast over CBS radio. I used to actually do that. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the Presbyterian pastor from 10th Presbyterian Church, He speculates what the streets of Philadelphia would look like if Satan was in control. And as he broadcasted this sermon over the worlds, he spoke this this word. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Hear that? Sounds so different than what we think the world would look like. I mean, if, if you think that Satan would take control of the streets of Orlando, it would look absolutely the opposite of this. But yet, Dr. Barnhouse gives us a a glimpse of reality without Christ, is that you could have a moral world, you could have a world that's obedient, but you could have a world that's going to hell, because it lacks what's most necessary, Jesus Christ for salvation. Elise Fitzpatrick comments on this in her book, Give Them Grace. Highly recommend this book for parents. She says, this is scary, mainly because when Barnhouse, what Barnhouse describes is what most of us want for our children. Jesus or no Jesus, we just want them to obey, be polite, not curse or look at pornography, get good jobs, marry a nice person and not get caught up in the really bad stuff. So much of our lives can be caught up, I know even as a parent, with trying to make my kids good kids according to the rule and order of society. When our, parent, when our kids go haywire, or when you went haywire as a kid, which we all did, when you went haywire growing up, which we all did, we know that it's those times where God uses us to see our sin and to bring us to an awareness of God's grace. What is the point in a well-behaved kid who never understands their need for the gospel? What is the point of a well-behaved world? What is the point of a well-behaved church if we do not understand our need of the gospel? What we're going to see here in the gospel according to the Pharisees is that there is actually no need of God in the middle of it. The gospel of the according, uh, according to the Pharisees says that you have to follow the rules of man-made religion in order to earn the affection and approval of God. Where Jesus says, I will have none of it. I will have none of it. The big idea today is that Jesus came to bring transformation of the human heart, not to maintain the status quo of religion. Let me say that for us one more time. Jesus came to bring transformation of the human heart and not 
to maintain the status quo of religion. Let me show you a little bit of the status quo of religion according to the Pharisees. If you have your scripture journal or your Bible and you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to see the story of Jesus with the paralytic. When Jesus heals the paralytic, he doesn't just heal the paralytic. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. The troublesome moment that Jesus gets within the religious culture and context of the day isn't as much related to the healing in that Jesus says to, he has the audacity to say to this man who's never moved his whole life that his sins are forgiven because Jesus is foreshadowing the ultimate work of healing that he would do. And the Pharisees, as a result of that, call him a blasphemer. So this pattern of opposition begins to build right there with the story of the healing of the paralytic. The next thing we see when Jesus calls Levi, look at verse 13 through 17. Jesus calls Levi, and what is Jesus guilty of in the midst of calling Levi? This tax collector that was considered the scum of the earth. He was guilty of fraternizing with sinners, man. Why would... Why would he ever break the table boundaries that were set within his cultures while feasting? Feasting with sinners and tax collectors. That's just who he is and that's just what he does. And now here we see Jesus is guilty of breaking religious tradition by not following their man-made rules and stipulations and regulations around fasting. We see the next story. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And because Jesus doesn't follow their guidelines, the barriers, the boundary markers that they set, Jesus is guilty in being called a a Sabbath breaker. And then finally, Jesus heals again on the Sabbath day. So this is a seven-day window. We see the healing of the paralytic. And now Jesus does another healing. And that healing that Jesus does... It, it, it gives us this picture where Jesus is bringing life and the Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring to bring death. I'm going to go through this sermon with three points. Point number one is the gospel of the Pharisees believe in the gospel of addition. Point number two is the gospel of the Pharisees believes in the gospel of subtraction. And point number three, the gospel of the Pharisees is the gospel of death. I'm going to give you a little a little understanding of what I mean with that language uh, here in a little bit. So let's start with verse uh, or with point number one, the the gospel of addition. So the Pharisees prided themselves with fasting. Fasting was a big deal in not only the the life of the Pharisees, but also anyone who was following uh, the the, the Jewish culture um, in this period of time. If you were considered a, a person that was pious, pursuing holiness and piety, then you would have fasted Tuesdays and Thursdays, and you have also would have fasted for national holidays. There were uh, fasting in grief and lamentation. You would fast also uh, to, to gain an awareness or sensitivity uh, of God. 
But, but all of these fastings became right and wrote rituals. The, the, the meaning behind the fasting or the purpose behind the fasting was completely lost. You know, some would say that Jesus was anti-fasting. No, Jesus wasn't anti-fasting. Jesus was anti-making fasting about man-made religion. What Jesus did when he came against the Pharisees here as related to their fastings is he's saying to the Pharisees, what you have done is you've added to God's law in such a way that God's law is no longer recognizable. That's what the gospel of addition does. It adds to God's law to which God's law doesn't become God's law anymore. It becomes man-made religion. And so there was actually only one fast that was commanded upon all of Israel to obey one time per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And that was the mandated fast for the people of God. Now let me tell you a little bit about fasting. Fasting is given to us as a gift. If you want to experience the hunger pains of God, hunger and thirsting for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, there are few things in this world that will remind you that you are hungry for Christ than skipping a few meals. Because as soon as those hunger pain hits, you're able to, to begin to realize that my hunger for God is actually greater than my hunger for the nourishment of my body. And so fasting is given for a greater purpose. And so you understand some of the, the, the described fasts of scriptures, fasting for grief, fasting for discernment, fasting for um, national tragedy in the midst of those things. Those things remind us that we want God's presence with us right now. And what Jesus does is he tells this little story. He tells this series of stories here. He says to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they had the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, a first century Jew getting married, it, you would have hated it today, by the way. I mean, it was a, a wedding that, that, that we have no idea of what it was like. But what, when, when a couple would get married, uh, there was no honeymoon. They would get married and then they would open their home for like a week and the, the bride and the groom would host like a week-long party all on their dime. So rather than spending the 10 grand on a honeymoon, you're spending 10 grand on feeding your wedding guests all week long. And they drink a whole lot of wine, as we see when Jesus turns the water into wine. They know how to enjoy your dollar, right? And so... What Jesus is describing here is that when the groom's present with the guests, why in the world would the guests fast? Why in the world would the guests not celebrate the union, the covenant union of the joining of these two lives in marriage? When the groom is present, it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebration. And what Jesus is saying is that, hello, the groom is present. He's here among his disciples. He's here among his people. Now's not the time to fast. Now's the time to feast. Hence why he was feasting with the sinners and tax collectors. 
But the Pharisees, they didn't like this because Jesus wasn't following their rules and regulations. Jesus wasn't showing the personal piety of the Pharisees. And they even pull a little, a little John the Baptist on Jesus to say, how come you guys aren't like them? Jesus says, because now there's a celebration. I watched this little snippet of a video after uh, the Super Bowl. And uh, the wide receiver of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is out on the field and the confetti is all down. And then his fiance just books it towards him. She is running at him as fast as she can. She jumps up, embraces him. He holds her and they just are crying together in celebration about what just happened. They just won the Super Bowl. And she says to him, she says, can we lay on the confetti? Can we please go lay on the confetti? He says, all right, bae, we're the best in the world. Let's go lay on the confetti. And there's this celebration where you just like, yes, they won. You can see it, whether you are a Tampa Bay Bucks fan or not. I mean, it was beautiful. And in the same way, that celebration of we won is the celebration that we have with the presence of Christ. When Christ came to earth, he said, hell no to Satan. That's what he did. And that's the good news of the gospel is that death cannot defeat us. And now when do you weep or when do you fast? This was awkward when the bridegroom was taken away. We don't understand that. They didn't understand that. But Jesus was predicting his death that, yes, the bridegroom would be taken away, nailed to the cross. That's when we fast. Let's go through the next story. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. So, Jesus has developed for them a word picture of his purpose of the purpose of the law. And this word picture involves an unshrunk cloth and a new piece of cloth. And he says, you can't take the new piece of cloth and sew it to the unshrunk cloth because what's going to happen is that when that cloth or garment gets wet, the new piece of cloth is going to shrink and then it's going to tear away from the stitches of the old piece of cloth. And again, both the old garment and the new piece of cloth are useless. What the Pharisees wanted to do with Jesus is they wanted to attach him to the old garment of their man-made rules and regulations and somehow make it work. The Pharisees would have been happy to use Jesus as a cog in their, in their wheel for systematic oppression by religion. They would have been very happy to do that. Jesus would not let them. You need a whole new garment. That's what you need. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing that we do. Like, listen, it's not just a Pharisee thing. We do it. 
We, we try to take a little Jesus and add him to our life without the renewal that he brings because we're happy with our old life and we just want to patchwork a little bit of Jesus onto our needs and think that somehow if we just patchwork Jesus onto our needs, then it's going to be sufficient. But what we see when we try that, because chances are you've tried this, it brings about a tear, a ripping the, the, the cloth or the garment is worse than it was before because Jesus doesn't want to just be a little pep in your step each day. Jesus wants to, you to be a new creation, transformation of the heart, not maintaining, maintaining the status quo of your life. That's what Jesus does. He brings about renewal and complete transformation. Next story, 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. So uh, wineskin would be made by grade A goat leather. And the fresh grade A goat leather was perfect for wine because when you put the new wine in the fresh wineskin, the new wine would ferment, and as the new wine fermented, the fresh wineskin would be able to expand because it was elastic, it was stretchable, it was more durable. It was able to expand with the new wine. If you take new wine and you put it into old wineskin, then the old wineskin has already expanded. It's already had its elasticity worn out. And so if you put new wine in the old wineskin, well, the old wineskin would burst and then you lose the new wine. And Jesus is saying what you're trying to do with your man-made religion is you are trying to add me, the new wine, in your old wineskins when really you need a fresh new wineskin as a result of it. Right? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, uh, the, the reference number is escaping me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 517, thank you, thank you. Wow, you guys are holy. You guys are holy. <laughs> new wine. The Pharisees, they didn't want to change. We have to acknowledge the ways that we, like the Pharisees, don't want to change. We want to maintain the status quo of our lives. And we don't want the renewal of Jesus Christ, that renewal from the inside out, that transformation of the human heart. We say, okay, I'll obey your law. But we say, Lord, you cannot rule over me. And that is man-made religion. The gospel according to the Pharisees is the gospel of addition that perverts God's law because it adds man-made stipulations on top of it. Point number two, the gospel of subtraction. The Pharisees, they did really good with the letter of the law, but they did not do very good with the spirit of the law. They, in fact, totally missed it. And as it related to the Sabbath, they were really good at keeping the letter of the law, but they were horrible in understanding 
the spirit of the law. And so the gospel of subtraction says that I get the letter of the law, but I subtract the spirit of the law. And if I get the letter of the law, then I'm obedient to the law. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus says, that if you miss the spirit of the law, you miss the law entirely. And what they had done is they'd taken God's holy Sabbath. That man, woman, is made to rest and revel in the divine providence of God, the care of God upon their life. They've made it something entirely that God never intended it to be. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So Jesus' disciples are walking through the grain field, which actually by law they were able to, if hungry, walk through the grain field and pick a few heads of grain and eat them. That was not the problem for them on the Sabbath. But the problem became when they... the, The problem wasn't that they were picking grains of head that weren't theirs. That was... Legally, they, they could do that. There was provision in God's law for that, for sojourners to, to be able to have just enough that they needed from the grain fields of others. But this was the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, they were really good at hedging God's law. When I say hedging God's law, there's God's law here. And then in front of it, they put a hedge just to make sure that they kept God's law. And so that hedge represents a bunch of rules that they've created so they just make sure they didn't actually break the law and that hedge is like mammothly huge and one of the ways that they hedge God's law around do not work which was they made sure that no one could travel on the Sabbath because if you were traveling then you were walking too much and you were working so they made a rule that said you can only take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath day. Could you imagine having to count those without your iPhone or your watch? But they had to do that. When you go to the bathroom or when you get up from the bed to do something or when you go from here to there, you're counting all your steps to make sure that you kept the Sabbath. Women could not wash on the Sabbath because if women washed on the Sabbath and they spill a little water on the floor, then they would have to clean it up. God forbid they clean it up because if they do, they're working on the Sabbath. And there are tons of religious rules and requirements that they added to that. I started thinking about what would some, if, if I could make a gospel according to Ryan, what are some of the rules that I'd make for the world? Well, one, I'd make sure you never put ketchup on a hot dog. You know, I mean, and God forbid you would put it on a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich for crying out loud. I've already had a few talks about that with my son. I'd make sure that if you go to a good steakhouse, you don't ask for A1. No way. And listen, this is the most important. One political Facebook post a month. That's it. One a month. That's it. That would be the gospel according to Ryan. And that would be man-made rules. Because some of y'all, I mean, you don't want to admit it. And you should be full of shame here today. You put ketchup on the hot dog. All right? I'm kidding. You shouldn't be full of shame. It's okay. Just put that ketchup on a hot dog. I might throw up, but that's fine. And what they've done is they made 
all these rules and requirements and regulations, and they felt better about themselves all the while, oppressing and putting shame upon shame upon shame upon shame with others. Let me read you the account from Genesis related to the Sabbath. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So what did God do? God blessed the seventh day. We're here on the seventh day, and we should know this is a day that the Lord has blessed. God blessed the seventh day, and what did he do? He made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. You know, God made the heavens and the earth and and in the six days he created every time he created he said it was good it was good it was good at the end of the sixth day he says it is very good and on the seventh day he rested in the doneness of his creation in the same way god rested in the doneness of his creation we are called to rest in the finishedness or the doneness of our salvation in jesus christ That God did not leave us hanging with just creating the world, but God sent his only begotten son in order to redeem the world and restore creation so that we on the Sabbath day can rest and say, this is not about striving. This is not about earning. This is about God has accomplished. I mean, each and every week, you and I are tempted with the rat race of life. You know, I mean, this week, for example, has been chaotic for so many of us. I I still have a kidney stone. I'm trying to figure out how to get this thing out. And then I've also got to deal with insurance where I have not had to deal with it before. And then we got insurance issues with the kids and all this kind of stuff. That's on top of my work week of preaching and pastoring and counseling and discipling and strategizing and investing in people. And then you also have, I'm trying to build a shed in my backyard. Father-in-law is doing that, by the way. Thanks, dad. And and all these other things that we're trying to do and trying to accomplish. And we say to ourselves, how could I possibly rest? If I rest, that's not going to move the ball forward at all. That's going to push me back. But yet when we don't rest, we don't acknowledge that God is the doer, that he's done it. We think that we've got to do it, that we've got to keep earning, keep striving, keep building, keep, 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 keep building our little K kingdoms. But yet God says it is done. And we rest in him. That's the intention of God on the Sabbath. Uh, Comedian Lily Tomlin, she says, the trouble with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. Right? There's some truth into that because what we do when we don't rest in God and we don't take for ourselves a Sabbath Not just a a Sabbath day, but a a Sabbath of the heart is we are being subhuman. We are less than what God intended us. And the point of the Sabbath is that it's meant to restore our humanity. Jesus says in verse 27 and 28, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying here is that 
the purpose of the law is for our good, not our harm. The purpose of the law is for human flourishing. What good is the law if it does not promote human flourishing? Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He throws a little story in there. He says, come on in. Let me tell you a little story. You remember David in the time of Abiathar? The time of Abiathar was like a chapter. He was a high priest that had a long reign, and so the Jews would have referenced his as a chapter, but the actual high priest in that period was Abiathar's father, Abimelech. David and his men were fugitives from Saul. They were hungry, starving. And so how would they eat? David knows there's bread in temple. So he asked the high priest Abimelech if he could have some of that bread. Well, the problem was that bread was only for the high priest. By law, only the high priest could eat that bread. But yet David and his men are starving. Do they die or do they eat the bread? Is the law for human flourishing or is it for death? So the bread is given to David. David gives it to his men and they enjoy the bread of the presence that was only meant to be eaten by the high priest. So I would say that in that law, we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath because Jesus is the one who made the law. So Jesus is the one who, by because he made the law, he has all authority to interpret the law and he is interpreting the law in such a way that if it causes death, it's not the law, but the law brings life. The law brings life. The law brings life. Now, the only way the law brings life, if you recognize that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, we're going to get that to here in just a moment. I want us to, I want us to like, before we start thinking this, the Pharisees are a bunch of bad guys and, and the Pharisees and the, and, and, and the religious people of their day, we could have easily been in their position. In fact, I want us to see that we might even today easily be in their position. Uh, Paul David Tripps, he says, Listen, before we stand too far away from the Pharisees, let's admit this in us. Parents, would you agree that it's often easier to beat your kids with a law than to rescue them with grace? It's easier to have judgment and a condemning spirit towards a husband and wife than it is to look at them in their struggle with sin, with compassion and grace and perseverance and gospel ministry. It's easier to look down on a brother and sister in Christ who doesn't seem to be far as far along as you are. Deeds of that legalism, morality, are still inside of all of us. We see the immorality to be one of the gravest threats of Christianity in our own hearts. I'm telling you, friends, there's two ditches that we could easily fall in. Immorality is one of them, but the other is morality. And the difference between the two is the gospel. And Jesus shows us this final picture with the gospel, uh, according to the Pharisees, being the gospel of death. I want to describe this story to the best of my ability of what I envision this story looking like. And it is fabulous. The synagogue used to look like probably a church building inside. It might have been about as big as this building. And Jesus on the Sabbath day has 
already collected a, a following of people. He's been teaching. He's been ministering. And as Jesus is teaching and ministering on the Sabbath, these thousands of people are following along with Christ. And as they enter into the synagogue, so is everybody else. And so that means every pew in this place is packed and they aren't social distance. And everybody is standing down the aisles and there's people that are spilling outside the door and there are people going this way, looking through the windows and they're going this way, looking through the windows. And they're wondering what this man Jesus would do now. They're, they're actually absolutely captured with rapt attention. And then there's the Pharisees on the front row. And the Pharisees are just waiting to trap Jesus. They aren't watching Jesus in order to stand in awe of him. They're watching Jesus to see how they can bring him down. And there's a man in the temple, I'm sorry, this is the synagogue, who has a withered hand. This is a man who has sat in the shadows for years and years and years. He has been neglected among them for so very long. And they wonder, they wonder what Jesus is going to do. And surely Jesus is going to do something because he's not afraid of them. He wasn't afraid of them. Jesus had no fear of this man-made religious system and structures or even what they could do to him. And so Jesus calls the man and he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Now, could you imagine being this man in the middle of this crowd and everybody is watching with silence and they're wondering what Jesus is going to do. And he comes forth and Jesus is right next to this man. And then he brings the man up almost like an object lesson for everybody there. And he says this to the Pharisees, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. They didn't answer him. The answer is obvious, isn't it? Jesus asked the question in an obvious way. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to bring about saving lives or harming lives, killing lives. And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. See the emotion of the person Jesus here expressed, looking at them with anger, saddened at the hardness of their heart. They could not get it. And then you have the man who had been neglected. And Jesus, from that place of anger and grief at the hardness of their heart, he, he turns his attention to the man who has had the withered hand and who's been known among those in the synagogue but never truly known by them. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now everybody's watching. The Pharisees are waiting not only to trap Jesus, but to, to oust this man from their community life. This man, rather than following the, the crushing cultural conditions around him, he looks at the Savior and he stretches out his hand by faith. That's so good. He stretches out his hand by faith. And his hand was restored. 
Jesus healed this man from the bottom of his palm to the tips of his fingernails. His hand was restored. Now that hand that was withered, that this man in all likelihood hid so others didn't know that it was a problem, was able to now be raised in worship and praise of Jehovah Raphim, the God who heals. This is what Jesus does. This is the purpose of the Sabbath, to bring life, to bring life, to bring life, to bring life. In the same way the man stretched out his hand by faith is the same way God is calling us to trust in him, us for us to trust in him today by faith. You've got those areas in your life, those ways in which you need God's ministry. I find it that I really would like to have life to where I didn't need God because it seems like life would be easier that way, right? It seems like life would be easier if I just didn't have these problems or these things that reveal my inadequacies and my neediness for Christ. But God used this withered hand as a man that the world would have considered a curse as the ultimate blessing. In the same way, God uses those problems, those trials, those circumstances, those revealing things of our character and our need to show us that we were made to worship Jesus. And he restores us by faith. In the same way the man stretched out his hand is the same way where Jesus calls us to follow after him. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You're relying upon your obedience to the Ten Commandments you broke, number one, Right? And your breaking of number one makes you a lawbreaker according to the scripture because you have not worshipped God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you've put other gods before him. You've done that. I've done that. We've done that. If you want to take the Ten Commandments and check on how you're doing, you have failed miserably. I just want to tell you that. You can pull out all your good works and make them a list and try to give them to God on that day of judgment and say, God, here's why you should accept me and God will reject you because you have been guilty of treason. And the only way that you can have salvation is if God restores you by being for you your perfect obedience to the law. And that's what he did. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died the sinner's death. Galatians 3.13 But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Jesus died the death that no one would have predicted. But yes, the Bible predicts it. Jesus dies the cursed death in order to bring restoration in life. It's far greater than the healing of a man with a withered hand. It's renewing your heart from the inside out so that you don't have to keep trying harder to maintain the status quo of religion today. That's what Jesus has done. The end of the story shows this divide 
the Pharisees thinking that their law keepers are actually lawbreakers. The one who is accused of being the lawbreaker is actually the law keeper because the one who is doing good on the Sabbath is the one who's bringing life and the ones who are doing evil or harm on the Sabbath are the ones who are conspiring for his death. It shows that, that dichotomy, that picture, that irony that Jesus is the one who brings life. And even in the healing of that man on the Sabbath, showing that life and flourishing is a part of what God does, where those who think they're keeping the law are actually conspiring to do horrific evil, which would be to hang him on the tree. But God would use that. God would use that. I want to give quick application to this because I think that this is important for our church to take some things home and to leave these things out. Point number one for application is um, in order to reclaim the Sabbath, which we need to do. This is not a message that says don't fast, don't do Sabbath. This is a, this is a, a, a message that says we need to reclaim fasting and the Sabbath for what God intended it to be. And in order to reclaim these things for what God intended them to be, Jesus has to be Lord of our hearts. This is not you assuming that Jesus is Lord of your heart, but this is you going to God and saying, God, would you do surgery? Would you pull out the things in my life that don't belong so that, God, you would be making me a new creation, renewing me from the inside out? Point number two, the Sabbath is ultimately about worship. It's not about keeping God's law. It's not about checking the boxes. It's about worship. It's about a God who is holy, holy, holy. And you joining the chorus of the angels to sing the song they've been singing from before the world began. Holy, holy, holy is our God. Third point of application. We must, listen to me, we must reclaim corporate worship togetherness in the spirit of Jesus Christ that we are his people and he is our God and we want the whole world to know it. We're losing that. And we're not just losing it before coronavirus because you can, you can be a part of corporate worship here or online. Whatever means that we have, we can gather together, but there's a togetherness that's lacking And the togetherness is what we need to fight for, whether we're doing it on Zoom, whether we're meeting socially distanced at someone's house, whether we're feasting by bringing our own meal to take proper precautions, but we can do it. And we got to fight for it right now. Reclaim corporate worship. God has made a worshiping people and I am one. And so are you. The last point is this. Seek human flourishing on the Sabbath. Seek good on the Sabbath. Do good on the Sabbath. Find someone in need and bless them. Bless them. Bless them. In the same way Jesus blessed that man by healing his hand at great cost to himself, we must bless others by doing good and not harm to see their flourishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. God, you You don't use the law to heal us. 
You heal us by coming, God, with your blood so that the law can be everything that you made it to be so that we could walk in obedience not to the law but to you and the law shows us God that we're walking in you God help us God may the may the worship of of who you are and what you have done be be reclaimed here, God, in our midst. Even now, Lord, even now, Spirit of God, as we sing the next song, reclaim what belongs to you from our hearts so that we would be, God, everything you've wanted us to be. Restore our humanity right now. Make us new right now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause. I want us to reflect. I want the worship team to lead us through song, and then we'll take communion. Let's worship God together.